0: Welcome to the Fertility Podcast Bite Size, where the aim is to answer the questions that you want to know when Dr. Google just ain't cutting it. Maybe you've been in front of a consultant and have left and it's still keeping you awake at night. Or maybe you've been asking online and still aren't satisfied. So we've brought together the many experts that we've met, as well as asking brands who want to help you understand things better to share their wisdom in a bite-sized chunk. Now, if you've been listening for a while, you will know that on the Fertility Podcast, we have covered a lot of topics to help you learn more about your fertility. So if you've just found this podcast, do go and have a listen to our last couple of series as we've really mapped out what you need to be thinking about. What you're going to get here is a snippet of something useful, a bite-sized chunk of information on what can be an extremely overwhelming topic. Today we're hearing from Dr. Jane Stewart, who is an NHS consultant in reproductive medicine in the northeast of England, and she's one of 143 experts answering more of your questions over at FurseyAlley.com, who we've been working with to bring you this bite-sized chunk of useful information. Now, Jane has a lot of insight into subfertility, probably the worst diagnosis to get. You might have heard of it called unexplained infertility, but the proper name for it is Subfertility. It's a complicated one and majorly frustrating and hard to explain why it happens. Now, I asked Jane whether it can happen for no reason and how it's diagnosed. It's not that there's no
1: reason, but I think it's to do with risks and chances and people often say, well, I'm doing everything right, so why is it not happening? Well, it's not that if you do everything right, you will definitely get pregnant. Nearly everybody does it right. It's not that anybody's doing it wrong. It's just that it doesn't always happen. So to say there's no reason is impossible. There will be some reason why that month there was no pregnancy, whether it was to do with the quality of the egg, the timing, the anything. And we're never going to know that. It's so complex, the whole process of fertilization, the whole process of egg and sperm quality, the whole process of implantation. We're never ever going to be able to pin it down and say, on this cycle, if you had done this slightly differently, it would have happened. It's not like that. So I think (laughs) it's not that it doesn't happen for no reason. We're unlikely to be able to explain most of the subtle reasons. And actually, as a species, we don't get pregnant really easily, but actually, most of the time, it's okay. Unexplained subfertility in general terms would be considered to be couples who've tried for a reasonable length of time. The label sometimes given at the year mark, certainly by the two year mark, that's a statistical thing, where standard assessment of fertility has not shown a significant problem. In other words, the couple are having reasonably regular intercourse to give themselves the opportunity of conception. The fallopian tubes are okay. The woman's ovulating on a regular basis and the man has a normal or near normal sperm test. And therefore there's nothing obvious to pick up to say there's something going on here,
0: fundamentally reducing your chances. She also talked about some really fascinating stats on your chances of becoming pregnant and the age you'd need to think of having babies depending on how many you think you'd want if only it was so straightforward. Rather than saying, what are the chances of conceiving with
1: unexplained infertility, is how do you get that label really? So for young women, young couples, 95% of them, without a problem, would conceive within a couple of years of trying. If you haven't, then we'd consider you statistically to be an outlier. It doesn't necessarily mean that there's a problem. There might be a number of things that have contrived to, to make that happen. But at that point, we would give a label of so-called unexplained subfertility, if you like. It's not absolute, but it does recognise at least that there might be another problem there that we
0: can't explain. So what do we do about this blooming annoying situation too many people are affected by in the UK? Subfertility accounts for one in four cases of infertility, as Jane explains.
1: Our normal approach would be to try to maximise the chances of conception naturally. And although that label is often given at the one-year mark, that's relatively early if you're looking at the statistics. And so two years is not an unreasonable time for couples to try for a pregnancy if everything is okay otherwise. At that time, you've probably maximised your chances pretty well. There's still an ongoing chance. But our practice would be then to move to IVF treatment. And the rationale for that is because if there are subtle things going on, we're putting eggs and sperm together in the lab and we're understanding what's going on from a fertilisation point of view. We're bypassing the fallopian tubes So if there are subtle things going on with the tubes, we're bypassing that. We're learning things about people as we take through that process and hopefully also enhancing their chance of success. People have in the past used ovulation induction drugs to try to improve the chances. I think the rationale for that is poor. Clomiphene is a drug that's traditionally often been used in that setting. But if you're ovulating already, how does clomiphene make you ovulate better? And in fact, it probably has other impacts, including on the cervical mucus, possibly the endometrium that might actually make it harder for women to conceive in that setting. So although people will conceive, whether their chances are better than doing nothing is debatable and the only really very good trial which was done in Aberdeen some years ago suggested that there was no benefit in doing that. The other treatment that people often undertake is intrauterine insemination. That's much more controversial. There are people who really are very much in favour of that and others who uh, less so. The original way back ago data was not great because there was no good control trials going on to suggest that, that there was benefit over what people were doing on their own as opposed to just having data from treatment and in those studies years ago they were using drugs to enhance population often taking big risks with multiple pregnancies and if you reduce the risk of multiple pregnancy down you probably don't gain so much. There have been some newer trials from overseas from Europe suggesting benefit but actually they treat people very early there so they're starting to treat them at one year and whilst there might be some benefit in that that's tying people into treatment at a very early stage in the process if in fact they've still got a pretty good chance of conceiving on their own so it's difficult to know entirely what's the best thing to do if you don't actually know what the problem is but we're talking about risks and chances our preferred process would be to maximize your chances naturally keep out of the hospital setting as long as possible and then move to IVF at the two-year mark.
0: So to hear more from Jane, do check out Fertiali.com where you can find over 1,500 videos of experts answering the questions you want to know about your fertility. Kate and I work with Alley bringing experts that we've spoken to in the podcast together to help them create some more of their brilliant videos, answering the really specific questions that you've been asking like you've just heard. Now, we always want to make sure you can access credible information, so do subscribe to the Fertility Podcast feed so you'll get your bite-sized chunk every Friday when it lands and we'd love it if you rate, review and share what we're doing because we want to know if you're enjoying it.